Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at the Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. Here today with a very special guest, uh, Tom Terrence, uh, has a, a new book out that has a very arresting title to it, I must admit. It's called Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love. Subtitle, How a Violent Klansman Became a Champion of Racial Reconciliation. This is a, an absolutely fascinating story. John Grisham uh, called it a riveting memoir. Having, having gotten through some of it myself, I can attest to that Grisham was right about that. It's just an incredible story of gospel transformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Tom, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us and being willing to tell your story. Well, thank you, Scott. It's just a, a real privilege and honor to be on the program with you today. Now, your book, Tom, recounts this remarkable story of being uh, a seriously involved member of the Klan in the 60s, um, you know, prison term, coming to faith, and now a champion of racial reconciliation as a form of discipleship and faithfully following Christ. Tell us, I just, I think our listeners, I think I've just whetted their appetite a bit for for what I think is going to be quite a story. So tell us just a a sketch of that story. Mm. Well, I grew up in the deep south, Mobile, Alabama, in the 60s, came of age in the early 60s, and uh, been raised in church, um, very uh, regular, I would say, um, and um, a good Bible-believing church and all the rest, uh, baptized when I was 13, but not converted, um, didn't know it, though, uh, and when I was about 17, the um, Desegregation began in, in uh, my town there, and uh, I became very angry about it. Um, wasn't raised to be a racist, but I became very angry, uh, like uh, many, many other people in Alabama at that point. This was a kind of populist um, uh, wave that began to sweep through the South, um, probably identified with Governor George Wallace more than anybody else. Um, and uh, so... I got on board that train, so to speak, and began reading racist, anti-Semitic, uh, far-right materials distributed uh, at the high school I was attending, and became indoctrinated and uh, just found my heart being changed. It was a, it was a change of worldview, very, very much a change of worldview. And um, so... Um, I took on board a lot of hatred. I mean, it was, it was rooted in fear of the changes that are happening in society. Where is the world going? And, you know, this is not right. It's not the way it has been. And, and uh, so f- fear of change producing anger uh, at perceived enemies. And um, over time, that anger, anger is the cancer of the soul. And it spread, and I came to the point where I was... Um, wanted to affiliate with the um, the Klan over in Mississippi, which was the most violent right-wing group in America at that point. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the quick summary of how I got into all that. 
Um, let, me, let me stop you here. Just, just ask a follow-up yeah, question yeah. on that part of the story. I think you know many of our listeners are not old enough to have been alive during the fifties and sixties. Some of them are, but uh, tell just tell us a little bit about what what the general culture was like in the South in the fifties and sixties when you were growing up. Great question, Scott. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in, as I said, in Mobile, Alabama. It was founded in 1703. Never known anything but segregation. And, of course, that was what people thought was normal. That's what I thought was normal. It never entered my mind to think otherwise. Um, you went, if you went into any public place, um, you would have water fountains, um, bathrooms that had a sign over the door. It would say either colored or white. Um, well, that's just symptomatic of, of the whole culture. That's just the way it was structured. So um, black people lived in a certain section of town. White people lived in their areas, and there was no overlap, no mixing um, at all. And people had pretty well-defined roles. And I never met an African-American person who had a college degree or was in any kind of position of authority, responsibility, or anything like that. Uh, so, you know, it's very easy for me to look at, at um, black people and think, you know, by the, by the, the narrative of, well, they're inferior, they're not as smart as white people, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that just permeated the whole culture, the white culture, although there were some that were not that way, but the vast majority of people, that's sort of the way it was, and not just in Mobile, but across the South. And there's a fair amount of that kind of racist mentality in the North as well. It took a different form, but okay. So, then you you affiliated with the Klan in Mississippi, yeah. Uh, and then what sort of continue the story? Yeah. Well, I came in right as it was. Uh, it had been involved in a lot of terrible violence that you can read about in history books, but um, I came in right at the tail end of that, and um, so one night two of us were going to bomb the home of a Jewish businessman who had spoken against the Klan and was pro-civil rights and that sort of thing. Um, Well, we um, arrived in the wee hours of the morning to to deliver this bomb, and in the process of trying to do so... uh, we stepped right into um, an ambush. The FBI had discovered the plan. They had local kind of what we call a SWAT team there, 26 men heavily armed. Oh. And um, there was a, uh, an intense gun battle. The person with me was killed. I was shot four times at close range with double off buckshot. When they got me to the hospital, they said it'd be a miracle if I lived 45 minutes. Um, but God spared my life. It was, it was just mercy. It was just pure God's mer- purely God's mercy. Um, after several weeks, I was put in jail, then um, given a trial, sent to state penitentiary, which was considered one of the worst in the country. Um, for 30 years, that was my sentence, and I escaped about six months later with two other inmates. Um, was recaptured. A couple of days later, FBI SWAT team and one of the guys escaped, escaped with me was 
was killed in the gun battle there, right where I had been five minutes before, where I should have been. Mm-hmm. He came, relieved me early from standing watch. There's another instance of God's mercy. Um, I mean, you can tell from what I've said so far, I did not deserve any kind of uh, breaks, mm-hmm. <laughs> any divine uh, help here. And uh, so, you know, I was put back in prison in the maximum security unit. And that's where things began to change in my life. Okay. So in, in solitary confinement? I was in a cell by myself. There were other cells along the cell block. I, I couldn't see anybody. I'd just see a corridor in front of me. But um, I was by myself and in that cell 24 hours a day and um, seven days a week. That was it. So you say things started to change about that time. You, I take it that's when your genuine conversion to faith started yeah. happening? Yeah, but it's quite an odyssey because when I got back in that cell— of course, to keep from going crazy, uh, I had to read all the time. And uh, what did I do? Well, uh, I jumped right into all the racist, anti-Semitic books oh, that I had not read before. I, I didn't reach for the Bible. Not, you know? not, exa- not exactly plan A. No, I, um, uh, I, I uh, hadn't lear- learned the first law of holes when you're in one, quit digging. <laughs> And so I was digging myself ever more deeply into this uh, darkness and deception. Um, but at a certain point, I felt drawn to read classical philosophy. And so I read through Plato and Aristotle, Marcus Aurelius. Um, and obviously that didn't cause me to repent and <laughs> believe the gospel. Uh, but it did give me this, the... I came away with... Uh, very clear conviction that there was such a thing as truth, uh, objective truth, and that it was there for us to discover. And uh, also Socrates and his comment the unexamined life is not worth living. And so that set me on a quest for truth. I had no idea where it would go, and I never dreamt that it would take me away from my far-right ideology. and it wasn't a search for God. You know, it was just a search for truth, kind of abstract. Mm-hmm. Search for truth. Um, and, but what happened in that journey is at a certain point, I felt drawn to read the Gospels. And that's where I was ambushed by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> My eyes began to be opened. and I began to see what I had never seen before, and the meaning of those words um, uh, became clearer to me, and I became convicted of my sins, which I think is a crucial part of true conversion. Why do you need Jesus if you don't have a sin problem, you know? And I became convicted of my sins. God granted me repentance, and, um, you know, my heart was really um, moved with, with sorrow for my sins and um, tears of, of contrition. And um, I got on my knees one night and prayed a very simple prayer and asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins and take over my life. And something changed inside of me. And um, I haven't been the same since. That was 50 years ago. And this happened basically without much meaningful contact with any other person. 
It was just it was basically the work of the Holy Spirit and you. It was the work of the Holy Spirit, but here's a little footnote to the story. I did not know this at the time, but the wife of the FBI agent who set up this uh, capture in, in uh, the bombing attempt mm-hmm. had a prayer group, and she was a very serious praying Christian, and so were the other ladies in that group. And, you know, I guess they hadn't had time to get mature yet. They just believed it was true what they read in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, God can save this guy. God can do miracles. Let's pray for the Lord to save him. And they met that. weekly for two years praying for my conversion. Amazing. And so that's the story behind the story. Yeah. No, that's quite a, I mean, that's, that's quite a cadre of people praying for you. <laughs> it uh, is. And, and sort, of, sort of ironically situated, too. Yeah. Um, I say sometimes the kingdom of God moves forward through the prayers of of um, little old gray-haired ladies on their knees. <laughs> yeah, who are, yeah, <laughs> who, who are very effective. Yes, um, yes. So you come, you come to faith in prison. How, how much more prison time did you have to serve at this point? Six more years. Okay, and what happened when you got out? Um, well, that was a miracle in itself because the, the warden was an atheist and um, he had no, um, he was, he was, completely unimpressed by my story of how I, my life changed. But he said, it's obvious to me your life's changed and um, you can leave next week. And uh, so I went to the University of Mississippi, uh, went there to study classics. I'd been doing what I could while I was in prison. I took courses in New Testament Greek and stuff like that. Uh, pretty well done all I could. So anyway, I went to Ole Miss, got into a good church, connected with uh, believers there on the campus and uh, just my growth really took off a lot more because I was in a church, a good healthy mm-hmm. church setting. And I was muddling along while I was in prison growing but um, you know when you don't have all the, the ingredients you need for healthy mm-hmm. spiritual growth uh, not, not quite as robust but Boy, it was great. Uh, so at, at that, did, when you got out of prison, did the Klan try and reconnect with you? They were so um, uh, diminished by then by that, that nothing was going on. A lot of those people were in prison already. And uh, they'd, had, they'd tried to get me killed in prison, um, and it fell through. And so um, that was a, probably a couple of years before I was released. Um, so um, I, I didn't have any problems uh, okay. that way at that point. So t- tell me a little bit about how your, your discipleship helped root out the, the racist ideology that you had bought into for so long. Great question. Um, actually, this is a kind of hopeful thing on a broader uh, scale. I saw the errors of racism and anti-Semitism before I was converted through reading um, actually a conservative um, uh, philosopher. Uh, And I just stumbled on this. And it it basically deconstructed both those things pretty quickly. Um, Of course, there's a big difference between um, that and actually loving your neighbor. And so I was delivered of the ideological stuff um, 
But it was through reading the word. You're not going to grow in grace if you don't immerse yourself in the word. And so as I read the word again and again, I spent six, eight hours a day reading scripture. Had plenty of time on my hands. I was going to say, that's a pretty pretty healthy diet. It's a healthy diet, indeed. And um, so I began to see that uh, God said, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And um, it didn't take an expert in math. Uh, You know, two and two is about all you needed to realize that um, uh, neighbors come in all different uh, colors, size, shapes, and colors. And... um, even political views and theological views. And so my job was to uh, love my neighbor, like Jesus said. And um, that's a, a crucial thing I think that a lot of us probably know but don't really take as seriously as we should. You know, we find reasons not to love our neighbor, uh, their political views or their skin color or their ethnicity or, you know, <laughs> you name it. Yeah, so the, the the subtitle of your book talks about how you've the, sort of the caps off this transformation by be, becoming a, a champion of racial reconciliation. You know, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing, particularly in that area, uh, as a part of your discipleship in following Jesus. Yeah, well, what I have done, I suppose I would say that my major focus, because um, having grown up in a kind of Bible Belt nominal Christianity, it's always been my concern to try to speak to that so that um, people would discover authentic Christian faith and discipleship. And um, so that's been my major um uh, thrust in ministry all these years. And so the uh, dealing with the racial thing is just one part of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wrote a book with John Perkins, who's a um, pretty well-known black leader on um, racial reconciliation. Um, I've tried to have some um, um, influence bringing together some pastors uh, to talk about that. And I've gone out and done some speaking. Um, but mostly it's been just living my life, not becoming a crusader for racial issues, but saying this is just the normal part of how any Christian should live. And building friendships with people that are different, you know, African-Americans. And the more I have done that over the years, I've been enabled to see life from a different perspective. Not, I mean, you know, whites are the majority culture, and we have the luxury of not really having to think about any of this. Right, right. Um, but getting these relationships, these really good friendships with African Americans, you begin to realize what life is like for uh, a lot of people, and uh, how can we love our neighbor? Well, you've yeah. got to understand the problem first. And uh, All right. You know, you... You indicated in the in the book that you you wrote about your experience back in the fifties and sixties some time ago, you know, and this is you are republishing this and adding to it because of some things you see going on today. Why, why did why did you decide to republish this and retell this story now? Well, Chuck Colson just uh, insisted uh, that I 
got the book out again. This was years ago, and I ignored it. <laughs> but uh, um, my concern— well, That's saying something, because he's pretty tough to ignore. He, he was very tough to ignore, but he was a good friend. We've been friends for many years. And I just didn't want to get—I I just didn't—it didn't connect with me. I was in the middle of doing all kinds of other ministry. But I came to the point um, the last few years of uh, feeling like it was important to get that message out again because we're back into another populist wave, and things go haywire in uh, times of populism and— um, What's happening is what I saw when I was in the 60s, you know. People are uh, all in kind of a turmoil, the social upheaval. Folks are saying, well, the world is happening to the country and uh, the world and et cetera, et cetera. And then there are folks coming along and saying, well, I can answer that question for you. Just come over here and let me talk with you. And that's going on now in spades with um, uh, people far-right, racist kinds of groups. And you've got the emergence of what's called the alt-right, and then you've got the left-wing version of that. And here on the West Coast, just go up to Portland, and uh, they love nothing better than to get out and have street warfare. You know, well, that's uh, a real challenge, but it's not just on the West Coast. It's not just in Portland. It's all over the country that these... um, Racist and anti-Semitic uh, incidents are skyrocketing. Um, attitudes are are really becoming more and more inflamed, and um, it's creating a worsening situation uh, in America over these over these issues. And of course, the whole political thing, all the polarization, it's creating just a perfect storm. And so, my concern, I'm not a politician, and, I, and um, that's not my area, but my concern is discipleship and that the believers not get swept up into this sort of stuff, which is so easy to do in such an uh, inflamed uh, kind of world that we're living in, that, that believers really focus on following Jesus and loving him and loving their neighbor, you know? So it sounds like, I mean, it sounds to me like you've, you've got a pretty unique perspective on this, having, you know, having lived through this in the 50s and 60s, and now seeing a lot today, a lot of the factors that are drawing people to these extremist groups in common with what drew you to, to this in the 50s and 60s. Would that be accurate? Uh, uh, absolutely. Okay, can you be a little more specific? What are, what are some of those things that you see in common? Well... Um, I think let's see the best way to pull this together Um, I suppose it's uh, um, the political thing is very significant Uh, for example uh, Governor Wallace was very much opposed to all the desegregation said the communists were behind it um and so people listened to that. They respected him in Alabama, at least, and all over the South. Um, took on board a lot of these things, and it it changed the way they looked at things. And that opened the door for other stuff uh, to come. And and so we we have that kind of thing working in today in a, a kind of populist uh, climate. Um, but 
a, a lot of folks getting out there talking about the race issue and um, um, again blacks well I, I'll tell you one of the big drivers is the whole thing of white apocalypse <clears throat> now uh, that basically says uh, that by it, drawing on Census Bureau projections about 2044 white people will no longer be the majority race in America. And, um, and so that is being uh, used with great effect to say um, uh, we need to stand up. White people need to stand up for their rights. Black people have the NACP. White people need to stand up. All these groups have their um, organizations to stand. So you need to stand up for your rights. And besides, consider this. Um, White people built America. White people built Western civilization, and on and on. And if we don't stand up and be counted and um, defend our race and our culture and our history, where will things go? Now, this can be spun in a pretty um, persuasive way for some folks. And there are folks doing this and button-down collars and tweed jackets on university campuses. And they're not quite like back in the 60s, though, where everybody supposedly was a Christian in these racist groups. Mm-hmm. Um, these are more Nietzschean folks. I see. And it's the whole power thing. And um, so it, it has a different philosophical foundation. But that, but that apocalyptic mentality was definitely in play in the 50s and 60s, too. A- absolutely. That's, that's a really hel- I think a really helpful way to put that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the sky was falling. If we desegregate, then whites and blacks yeah. spending time together, they will begin to uh, date yeah. and then marry. And then, of course, the, the great horror, um, if they marry and have children, well, that dilutes the um, capacities of the whites. And so that's a catastrophe for mm-hmm. civilization. And so part of the narrative in those days was we have to fight for white Christian civilization. Well, it's back with us yeah. again, um, you know. Okay, so here's, in light, that's really interesting that, you, that those two things were so, so clearly linked, you know, a white Christian civilization back then. Yeah. So what, what would you say today to the extremists who are also claiming that Christian mantle? Well, it's a very difficult situation, but I think that, at least for me, um, if one were to approach this, uh, I think relationship is an important thing, one-on-one relationship, and to build some kind of relationship in which you can communicate meaningfully with another person instead of just yelling at them, mm-hmm. yelling facts at them or yeah. something like that. Um, that may not be the easiest thing to do, and um, it's not clear how many people would want to do that on, on the extremist side of things. Um, but it's possible if you get um, enough of a relational base established to communicate about some of these things and look at the issues and look at the facts. Um, and, the, you know, all, all these racist, anti-Semitic um, uh, ideas, 
if you know the facts, you can you can help people. You can you can at least present truth to them. Um, but uh, so that, that's one thing. But if somebody's really immersed in ideology, really capt- captured by ideology, it's really difficult because somebody who's an ideologue has already determined in advance what the truth is, and they will not accept any evidence you give them mm-hmm. that contradicts their. Uh, presuppositions. Right. Right. No mind, matter what you show them, right. you know. My uh, mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. Exactly. That's the problem with ideologies. Um, not everybody's that deeply immersed, uh, but ultimately, this is a spiritual issue, and prayer and fasting uh, are important parts of it. And also, if people are willing to listen to it, help them understand what authentic Christianity is. Not this culture religion um, that you know has been um, uh, ad- adapted to. Yeah. Yeah. No. Th- th- throughout our conversation in the last few minutes, you've repeatedly sort of made the claim that you know racist attitudes are all fundamentally a failure of discipleship. Right. Uh, a failure to f- to fully follow Jesus, to fully l- love your neighbor, yes. you know, regardless of race, ethnicity, you know, any any other. Uh, thing that would that, that would that we would make distinctions based on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, let me have one final question, Tom. Uh, in the area of racial reconciliation today, what are, what gives you hope for racial reconciliation going forward? Well, I just was talking about this with a African American friend a few minutes ago here. Um, and I've heard it from others. Uh, it looks like the, um, the area in society where there's the most reason to be hopeful is the millennials. Uh, if you look at churches where you have this kind of openness that we're talking about here, and loving across all these different lines, um, for the most part, millennials are at the heart of it. Um, there are some exceptions. Um, so uh, I think millennials get it. Um, Three quarters of millennials uh, believe that uh, this is a good thing. And um, that might be a, a good place to focus our efforts. Um, of course, people all along the spectrum uh, shouldn't be ruled out, but... Um, but, but in your view, that's that's cause to be encouraged. I would say so. Good. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Yeah. Well, Tom, this has been a rich conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for your book. I want to I want to commend to our listeners again your book, uh, "Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love," by Thomas Terrence. Uh, subtitled How a Violent Klansman Became a Champion of Racial Reconciliation. I commend you for publishing this. Uh, for Chuck Colson finally getting through to you to, <laughs> to write it down and to tell your story like you have. So this has been just a, a rich time. And I commend your book to our listeners, and thank you so much for coming on with us. Well, thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Thomas Terrence, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. It's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. 
you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.